Hey, y'all, and welcome back to Gimme the Creeps with Abby and Daniela. Hello, hello. This week, Daniela is bringing us something special. Yes, I am. Oh, my goodness, I'm still slightly... <laughs> um, Just got off work? No. <laughs> <laughs> but... I am slightly. Uh, oh, I know my edible started hitting thirty minutes ago. Influence. Yes, there, there. <gasps> I'm fixing cracks in my walls. Oh god, that scared me. <laughs> oh, you're gonna love this since we're talking about under the influence. I was smoking out back on my patio upstairs, and the mailman came. And I was like, oh, shoot, does he need me to go sign? And I could see him still standing at the door. So I leave the dogs out there and I go and I'm high. Like, oh, my God, I didn't know what to do when I opened the door. And I think I said, hey, how are you doing? And he and he answered me and then he's telling me where to sign. And I'm just staring at him for a second, like staring at the pin. And I was like, hello. <laughs> I'm like trying to get myself to take the pin. I take the pin, I sign. And I think I asked and then I asked him again. So how are you doing today? Oh my god, Abby. <laughs> he was like, what the he probably smelled me. He's probably laughing he over probably, some way. Yeah. Oh gosh. And the last time and every time my dogs are always going nuts, right? So I have to like get them out of the way and put them away and get then come to the door and I'm so sorry. He's like, Oh no worries. He's so nice all the time. And then the last time I had to sign for something, I was covered in drywall dust and I had my goggles on and my mask and my headphones on. So he was there for a minute at the door and I was like, oh, shoot, I had to get the dogs out of the way, et cetera. And he's like, you've been busy, huh? And I just kind of laughed because I, I think I was also high again. And I was like, oh, shoot, I was so focused on what I was doing. But he's like, what is this girl up to in this house all day? That is just <sighs> smoking. Yeah, I know. Like, what does she have to be stressed out about? But anyways. <laughs> and you're like... Um, at this point, it's yeah. just to help get through the day. <laughs> Honestly, that is so funny you say that because um, uh, Hunter went out of town for work and I'm usually like, okay, whatever, it's fine. And I don't know if it's that, but I was like feeling emotional this morning and then I was not I was not trying to like wake and bake like I did the rest of the days just to see if I could be fine. I was just drinking water and taking care of myself instead of just smoking weed. But anyway... <laughs> I'm on TikTok and of course those child children's books that they read. Oh god, forget it. I lost it. I was crying and I was like, yeah, I need to smoke something. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm in my feelings today. Oh. <laughs> I need to I need to some to laugh at something. But anyways, I'm good. It was just a I'm tender good. moment. It was a tender moment, okay? The oh. kissing hand for y'all wondering which book I was crying uh, over. The kissing hand. Look it up. Uh, grab a tissue. It's very sweet. Anyways, and back to you, Daniela, on the Oh my headlines. god, Abby. I'm lost right now. I was I can't. You gotta drive so, the boat. <laughs> okay, so are you telling me that your edible has kicked in? I think it has, because yeah, I can't. Thank you, right. <laughs> oh no. Oh, and no. it's only Tuesday. Anyways, <clears throat> yes, I'm anywho. straight. We have something special, and then you yawned, and now you're yawning again, so... Oh, no. <laughs> we will pick it up from okay, there. Okay, yeah, this is already a mess. <laughs> <laughs> we have 75 minutes to spare. Okay. 
Oh man, I shouldn't have said. <laughs> okay, here we go. <laughs> like, yes, here we go again. Yes, here we go. Okay, so <laughs> hopefully you cut out the entire intro because it is so bad. So we will bad. see what ends up happening. So bad. Okay, so. I'm going to just jump in there and you can pick up Perfect. what I'm putting down or wonderful. You can ask questions, whatever needs to happen. Here we go. So before Hollywood turned their ghost stories into blockbuster movies, Ed and Lorraine Warren made a name for themselves by investigating cases of paranormal hauntings and the like. Edward was a self-taught and self-professed demonologist, author, and lecturer, and Lorraine professed to be clairvoyant and a light trance medium who worked closely with her husband. How do you feel about this? I am giddy with delight. I'm so glad. (laughs) Okay, because we've done several... um, what are they called? Exorcisms. So I just was like, "Yes, you have. That's true." Let's let's go behind the scenes. Wonderful. <laughs> yes, and it got like a little true crimey too. So buckle the fuck up. Speaking of, before you take off, the new Exorcist is also kind of true crimey, but the religious parts were like very strong. I was touched. I was like, okay. Anyways, go on. Dude, I really want to watch that movie. And that's also it. what made me think of Right. Movies. Possessions. Give me the heebie-jeebies already. Yes. Okay. That's the only thing that will bring me to my knees and say, okay, Jesus, I believe. Knock on wood. Every- not that. Hopefully, let's oh not. Teach me a lesson. God, Please, do not. Yeah, don't do demons. that. Don't do that. <laughs> and with that being said. Jesus. <laughs> okay. So, Ed was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut on September 7th, 1926. His, okay, wait, before I do that, I, the math for this, Mm. for their age and, like, the years they were born, it's just not mathing. Mm -hmm. So, if (laughs) anyone out there decides to calculate in their brain, and it doesn't add up. It's because it doesn't. <laughs> right. It is what it. What's the public knowledge that's yes, available so to us? Somewhere along the way, some information was jotted down incorrectly, but okay, on purpose or by mistake, I don't know. But either way, mm. here we go. So Ed's father was a state trooper and a devout Catholic, and he enrolled Ed in parochial. Oh. Okay, so yes, they enrolled Ed in parochial school, which is a church school, I guess. Um, So the Warren family rented an old house from an unmarried landlady who didn't like dogs or children and constantly threw things at them in agitation. According to Ed, she was a real bitch. I don't think he used the word bitch, but that's the best explanation. (laughs) So when Ed was five years old, 
the mean landlady passed away, and it was then that Ed saw his first apparition. So a few days after her death, Ed witnessed every child's fear, a ghost in his closet. Oh my gosh. And it was the landlady. And she was like super fucking scary even when she Mm. was dead. Mm -mm. So another visitor that Ed encountered was the ghost of his aunt, who was a nun. He expressed Mm. that. I'm wondering if that was also an inspiration for the nun. I mean, a demon will um, take the form of what you have encountered um, or, you know, because it's imitating. Yeah. Creepy. Go on. So he expressed a desire to become a priest to her. Like he told his aunt that. Mm. However, she discounted it. She told him that he would instead consult priest and do more good work than 100 priests combined. Mm. What? I like, okay. Like most people, Ed's father claimed to his son that there had to be a logical explanation for the paranormal experiences that he was having. However, his father could never provide a logical explanation. (laughs) (laughs) So Ed soon found it more comforting to sit outside in the freezing weather or pouring rain rather than be alone inside of the haunted house that they Mm. lived in. Dang. Yeah. Ed's family moved from the reportedly haunted house when he was 12 and having come to terms with the spirits that he encountered there, his exposure to the paranormal just fueled the fire and his desire for more investigation and confrontation of otherworldly entities. So just three blocks away from where Ed lived was Lorraine Moran. So Lorraine was born a few months after Ed on January 31st, 1927. Her parents sent her to a Catholic girls' school, Laurelton Hall, in Milford, Connecticut. And at age 12, Lorraine first discovered her gift of clairvoyance. So I read that, and I also read that she was a skeptic at first, not just at 12. Not just to, like, 12, like, to her adulthood. Um, And then magically, she was clairvoyant. I don't know, though. I don't know which one is completely Mm. accurate. But anyways, um, so at an Arbor Day tree planting organized by the nuns, the sapling was placed into the ground, and Lorraine's adventure began. She started staring at the sky and could see a clear vision of the tree in its full-grown glory, which I wouldn't have taken that as, like... Clairvoyance? Yeah, like, Hmm. I don't know, that's just imagination, like, I don't know. (laughs) Right? Isn't that what that would be? She took it as, I saw the future, but, I mean... What if the tree dies and then the tree's never grown to that? I don't know. I don't know either. It was just weird. Like, what? I don't know. So when Lorraine told one of the nuns that her aura was brighter than the aura 
of the mother superior, it didn't go over too well with the sisters. (laughs) (laughs) They believed her psychic abilities were sinful and sent her Mm -hmm. off to a weekend retreat of prayer and silence. (gasps) But it did not silence her. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. So at 16, Ed worked as an usher at the Colonial Theater in Bridgeport. He and Lorraine met on June 22nd, 1943. Lorraine knew immediately that she and Ed would spend the rest of their lives together. And Ed was the only boy that Lorraine ever dated. (laughs) They would spend the next 50 plus years together, uh, not only as a married couple, but with a kinship for the paranormal they both experienced. So they married. Yeah. So they married on May 22nd. It's my grandma's birthday. 1945 and welcomed a daughter, Judy on January 11th, 1946. So, Oh my god. Uh, okay. So Ed attended art school for a short time and enjoyed painting landscapes. He turned his artistic talent into a. Oh my god. My eyes are like <laughs> watering <laughs> from yawning. <laughs> <laughs> okay um god damn it oh no I just fucking got my shit together (laughs) okay okay so Ed attended art school for a short time and enjoyed painting landscapes he turned his artistic talent into a living for a while but something was missing. His real love was finding and exploring haunted houses, which led further into his ghost hunting desires. Mm. So building their ghost hunting experiences together, as well as collecting a plethora of information, the Warrens headed into a full-time pursuit of paranormal consul- consultation to frightened homeowners of a haunted house. They were often the only confidants for the strange occurrences that happened in people's homes. Their reputation grew, as did their knowledge, and soon they found themselves giving advice and consultation to more and more homeowners. Then, the many interested strangers they encountered were hungry for the ghostly information the Warrens held. Ed and Lorraine established the New England Society for Psychic Research, in 1952 and this is the oldest ghost hunting group in new england today their son-in-law tony spara runs the group with their daughter judy keeping their legacy alive so when the warrens found that negative energy associated with teenagers and young adults attracted spirit activity they started lecturing at colleges. Mm. Isn't that wonderful? Right to the target audience. 
there is a teenager in my fucking household. Oh, is that accurate? There is negative energy. You feel no, it? she doesn't. I don't think she radiates it. Like she might. She be doesn't project it. Places. Do what? you know? She might just be absorbing it from other places, so you feel it, but it's not hers. You know what I mean? No, it's definitely hers. Oh, you think? I was trying to make her an empath over here. No, no. I mean, I'm sure it's a mixture of all of it, but it. She like holds it all in instead of projecting it. Um, That's why there's no. It'll manifest in other ways. I see what you're getting at there. Yes. Do you hear Pepper? I hear everything. Pepper. <laughs> Pepper just randomly started huffing and puffing over there. Oh yeah! Whenever they get their breathing all weird, I cover oh. their nose and then they start breathing normal. Oh yeah. I think it's the way she's laying over that bed, but um, <laughs> anyways, okay, so the purpose was to warn the list their listeners from unwittingly inviting supernatural trouble into their lives and family homes. Maybe that's it's also makes sense because at that age they start rebelling and making yes. decisions or making mistakes, so yes. it'll kind of manifest itself into negative energy yes interesting i never thought of it that way which um age group is more likely to carry something yeah huh so they started gathering an extensive archive of detailed information and reports from families plagued by paranormal activity they also spoke with other investigation investigators about their findings in cases they had handled they obtained photographs, audio, and video recordings of paranormal activity, including voices of spirits, spirit-infested clothing, artifacts, and other objects. Their interventions in the horrific and unbelievable, unbelievable evil situations were con- commended through gratuitous, gratuitous. Mm-hmm. Uh, letters from government officials, clergy, and ordinary people inflicted with the hauntings. So in their research, they were able to identify different types of spirits that required other remedies of extraction. Uh, Their investigations took them abroad as well as throughout America. When they received an invitation to investigate a potential paranormal entity, they would arrange to get to the property as quickly as possible. Once they arrived at the site, they usually went in separate directions. Ed conducted extensive, careful interviews with all persons involved. Lorraine did a little or did a walkthrough of the house to sense any spirit activity with her psychic senses. She would usually detect the presence of a spirit almost immediately upon entering the house. She also knew whether the entities were earthbound human ghosts or apparitions or inhuman demonic entities. So being firm believers in God, not allowing evil to visit humans, which you believe that God protects. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. They believe that God protects humans from evil. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
So, okay, yes. So, Ed and Lorraine warned people not to invite the ungodly forces into their lives. They cautioned against toying with the supernatural by means of conjuring, Ouija boards, seances, black witchcraft, Mm. or or satanic uh, rituals, which really... Hmm. Some of their other warnings warned of negative depressive states or becoming obsessed with a person, place, or thing. Ed referred to these allowances as the law of invitation and the law of attraction. Hmm. Okay. He furthered with the guidance that once a demon takes control, three stages, three stages follow infestation, oppression, and possession. And I'm pretty sure they said that in the Conjuring movie. Mm -hmm. So if the circumstances are severe enough, it can also lead to death. The Warrens held the objective to document and effect closure through the clergy by helping to identify the manifestation of demonic infestations, oppression, and possession. They did not conduct any exorcisms themselves, but turned it over to trained exorcists to rid the victim of the evil influence within. So the Warrens gave the afflicted support, blessings, and prayers during their ordeal. (laughs) They strongly urged a warning against anyone taking on the challenge of performing an exorcism by themselves. So several of the Warren's investigations became notable and capitalized on for movies, books, and articles. After all, who doesn't love a scary movie or a thrilling horror story? Um, The world is intrigued by anything paranormal, which brought much acclaim to the Warrens throughout the years. And now I'm going to talk about some of the most notable. I'm going to touch lightly on them, except for one that I hadn't heard about. Like the ones that I'm touching lightly are ones that have been made into movies. Mm -hmm. But there's two that I um, talked a little bit more about. Well, there's one mainly, but. The other one I had not heard about until I was reading the shit. Oh, nice. Yeah. Hold on, let me burp. <laughs> nope, it's not gonna happen. Just another yard. <laughs> it was disguised. Oh my god. <laughs> um. Okay. Okay. Here we go. The first one is the Annabelle doll. Ooh. We talked about her before, haven't we? We yeah, she's been on lists, my doll list, I think. Yes. So um okay, everybody knows Annabelle. And if you don't, then you can uh stick around and listen. So in a locked glass box in the occult museum, there's a Raggedy Ann doll named Annabelle with a positively do not open warning sign on it. 
The doll may not look menacing, but of all the items in the occult museum, the doll is what I'd be frightened of, said Tony Spira, the Warren's son-in-law. So according to the Warren's report, a 28-year-old nurse who received the doll as a gift in 1968 noticed that it started to change positions. Mm. Oh, my God. This is going to freak me out just talking about it. (laughs) It's creepy. It is. Um, Then she and her roommate started finding parchment paper with written messages saying things like, help me, help us. As if that wasn't strange enough, the girls claim that they didn't even have parchment paper in their house. Mm-mm. Next, the dolls started showing up in different rooms and leaking blood. Oh my god, I almost gave myself a heart attack. <laughs> I looked over to my right and there is a stuffed monkey, but all I see are beady eyes like fucking raggedy <laughs> Oh my god. Scared the shit out of me. Okay. Don't look at it. <laughs> I'm gonna try not to. Um unsure of what to do, the two women turned to a medium who said that the doll was being occupied by the spirit of a young girl named Annabelle Higgins. That's when Ed and Lorraine took an interest in the case and contacted the woman after, or the women after evaluating the doll, they came to the immediate conclusion that the doll itself was not in fact possessed, but manipulated by an inhuman presence. I'm scared myself. (laughs) Again. The Warren's evaluation was that the spirit in the doll was looking to possess a human host. So they took it from the women to keep them safe. I don't. (sighs) Yes. Okay. So, and then while they were driving away with the doll, the brakes in their car failed several times. They pulled over and doused the doll in holy water. And they say that after that, the car troubles stopped. According to Ed and Lorraine, Annabelle, the doll, continued to move around their house on her own, too. So they locked her in the glass case and sealed it with a binding prayer. A binding spell. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But even now, visitors to the Warrens Museum say that Annabelle continues to cause mischief and even take revenge on skeptics. (gasps) Darn. One couple of non-believers reportedly got into a motorcycle accident soon after visiting the museum with Mm -hmm. the survivor saying that they had just been laughing about Annabelle just before the crash. Uh, OMG. Those were skeptics for real. I'm pretty sure you've said this. That exact ending (laughs) on the podcast and it like still scared us. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, next. After Annabelle, it didn't take Ed and Lorraine long to land more high-profile cases. Mm-hmm. While the Perrin family served as the inspiration behind the film The Conjuring, the Warrens saw it as a very real and terrifying situation. In January 1971, the Perrin family, Carolyn and Roger, 
and their five daughters moved to a large farmhouse in Harrisville, Rhode Island. The family noticed strange occurrences happening right away that only got worse over time. It started with a missing broom, but it escalated into full-fledged angry spirits. In researching the home, oh, <laughs> in researching the home, Carolyn claimed to discover that the same family had owned it for eight generations, during which time many died by drowning, murder, or hanging. There's the burp. <laughs> uh, there is another. <laughs> when the Warrens were brought in, they claimed the home was haunted by a spirit. Oh my God, it's going to make me cry. It's going to give me the creeps. they claim that the home was haunted by a spirit named Bathsheba it gave me a chill to say out loud (laughs) so scary in fact a woman no don't make me say her name again (laughs) damn it okay a woman named mm -hmm, Mm -hmm. um, Sherman had lived on the property and the 1800s okay so (laughs) i heard a little like more detailed information about this lady and they say she was a witch and like that she killed her baby yeah for satanic ritual whatever but i mean somebody literally could have just fucking made that shit up like they could have seen her headstone saw her name and was like that sounds scary (laughs) we just connected their own dots yes like you never know yes but anyways back to this back to trying to actually scare you um (laughs) whoever the spirit was she perceived herself to be mistress of the house and she resented um Oh, okay. She resented the competition my mother posed for that position, said Andrea Perrin. According to Andrea, the family encountered several other spirits in the house that made their beds levitate and smelled like rotten flesh. Uh, Mm -hmm. The family avoided going into the basement because of the cold, stinking presence. (sighs) The things that went on there were just so incredibly frightening, Lorraine recalled. The Warrens made frequent trips to the house over the years that the Perrin family lived there. However, unlike the movie, they didn't perform an exorcism. Instead, they performed a seance that had Carolyn Perrin speaking in tongues before she was allegedly thrown across the room by spirits. Shaken by the seance and concerned for his wife's mental health, Roger Perrin asked the Warrens to leave and stop investigating the house. Hmm. And according to Andrea Perrin, or her account, the family finally saved up enough money to move out of the house in 1980, and the hauntings stopped. Weird. Mm-hmm. So the next case is the Amityville Horror Oh, we snap. all know that too. Yeah. So, though their other investigations remain intriguing, the Amityville horror case was Ed and Lorraine's claim to fame. In mm. November 1974, 23 year old Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr., you did 
an episode <laughs> on this too, right? No, I do not think so. Okay. Oh well. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. So the eldest, <laughs> the eldest child. <laughs> I just. <laughs> I just pictured, <laughs> I just pictured the what the fuck is his name the one of the wet bandits from Home Alone. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Where he's like, okay, 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 okay. The sticky bandits. Yes. I thought they were uh, the wet bandits. I don't remember. Oh, because he was leaving the sink song. Yeah, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, evil. That's truly evil, especially yeah. in today's Because that would time. piss me off more than <laughs> Your water anything. bill is just through the roof when you're well, back from vacation. Well, then vacay. you just ruined the whole fucking floor House. whenever it overflows. Gosh, that's so Yeah, evil. that is truly diabolical. <laughs> <laughs> he was on to something there. He was. <laughs> Oh, shit. Well, now that we're not scared anymore. I know. Mm. Damn it. Sorry. <laughs> it's a good thing. <clears throat> so in I'm November. Alone. I'm home alone. Oh, God. You're <laughs> home alone. I'm moving. That's my favorite. That's my favorite time sometimes to be scared. Oh, you are insane. When it's at its peak. It's like an adrenaline rush. I was home alone for a minute. For just a moment. <laughs> You're so brave. I know. So brave. You have a pack of girls Nuts. to protect you. A pack of girls. <laughs> that one is sleeping so soundly. Aww. Oh, she opened her eyes. She knew I was talking about her. Of course she did. She's all, I'm sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Before we get more distracted, okay. <laughs> Um, in November 1974, 23 year old Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr., the mm. eldest child of the DeFeo family, murdered his entire family in their beds with a 35 caliber rifle. Mm. The infamous case became the catalyst uh, for the claim that spirits haunted the Amityville house. In 1976, George and Kathy Lutz and their two sons moved into the Long Island house and soon believed a demonic spirit was residing there with them. George said that he witnessed his wife transforming into a 90-year-old woman and levitating above the bed. They claimed to see slime seeping out of the walls and a pig-like creature that menaced them. Even more unsettling, knives flew off the counters Pointing right at the members of the family. Oh my god. Yeah, that's too much. So the family walked around with a crucifix reciting the Lord's Prayer, but to no avail. One night, their final night there, this they say banging as loud as a marching band emanated throughout the house. After 28 days, they couldn't take it anymore and fled. Ed and Lorraine visited the home 20 days after the Lutzes left. According to the Warrens, Ed was physically pushed to the floor and Lorraine felt an overwhelming sense of a demonic presence. Along with their research team, they claimed to capture a spirit. 
or a picture of a spirit in the form of a little boy on the stairway. And we've seen Mm -hmm. this picture and it's not real. Mm -hmm. Like it's been debunked. Yeah. Unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the story became so high profile. It launched its own conspiracy theories, books and films, including the 1976 classic, the Amityville horror and the 2004 is it 2006 uh around that time a nice young ryan reynolds yes ryan reynolds canada's sweetheart being scary he's from canada right evil i don't know that would suit him if he was he (laughs) is definitely and it was 2005 oh see you were and it was based on the Lutz family. And that is, yeah, he's Canadian. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, right. if you haven't seen that one, go watch it because it's pretty good. Or, well, mm-hmm. it's entertaining, I guess. And you get to stare at Ryan Reynolds with an axe. Mm-hmm. He's, yeah, he's not the usual character that he usually No, plays, he's so not. He's nice. good. Yeah, it's good seeing him do something different. That's what I think. Yep, real chiseled man. <laughs> family man. It's turning into a thirst. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but yes, very frightening to see a yes. nice friendly guy. Go watch that. <laughs> okay, the next one is The Infield Haunting. In August, this is also another movie. Let's see if you. Ooh, the one in Britain? Yes. Uh, it was a conjuring two that's where the nun comes out but um Mm -hmm. in august 1977 the hodge the hodgson family reported strange things happening in their house in infield england knocking came from all over the house causing the hodgkins son of a bitch the hodgson's and it's the hudgens no that's not hodgson Okay, yes. Causing the Hodgsons to think perhaps burglars were prowling around the residence. They called the police to investigate, and the officer who were, who arrived is said to have witnessed a chair rising and moving on its own. Mm-hmm. And that's literally like a split second of a scene in the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, at other times, Legos and marbles flew across the room, and were hot to the touch afterwards. Folding mm-hmm. clothes leapt off of tabletops to fly around the room. Lights flickered, furniture spun, and the sound of a barking dog emanated from empty rooms. Oh. That scared me. That is weird. Then, inexplicably, a fireplace ripped itself out of the wall, attracting the attention of paranormal investigators from around the world, including Ed and Lorraine Warren. Mm. So they are not as involved as everyone thinks they are, but um, in this case, but uh, the Warrens who visited Enfield in 1978 were convinced that it was a real poltergeist case. Those who deal with the supernatural day in and day out know the phenomena are there. There's no doubt about it. Ed is quoted as saying, then two years after 
the whole fucking thing happened in infield, um, it stopped. Like, it just abruptly stopped. And the family maintains that they didn't do anything to stop it, that it just stopped by itself. But we'll talk talk about that a little bit later. Dang. Yeah. Another is the trial of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson. This Mm -hmm. is the most recent uh, Conjuring movie. Right. The Devil devil Made made Me me Do It. it. Yes. So this case is, um, or The Devil Made Me Do It is the popularized name for the truly strange trial of 19-year-old The Devil Made Me Do It case is the popularized name for the truly strange trial of 19-year-old Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, who, per the New York Times, was convicted of first-degree manslaughter for killing his landlord in 1981. The most bizarre part was the defense that he used in court, demonic possession. Apparently, a demon from 11-year-old David Glazelt's body took host in Johnson, who was the fiancé of David's sister, Debbie. And according to witnesses of Glatzel's exorcism, oh, yeah, because the the Glatzel kid was getting exorcised. I forgot about that. Yes, during this whole, yeah. Yeah, so the Glatzel family had moved into a new rental home in Brookfield, Connecticut, when David started saying that an old man would steal his soul. David had night terrors and unexplained cuts and bruises in addition to bizarre behavior. That's when the Warrens got involved and determined that there was a malevolent spirit afoot. According to AP News, the demonic possession defense didn't stick in court but Johnson only served five years of a sentence of up to 20. And Mm. so the incident inspired a TV movie on NBC called The Demon Murder Case. And Gerald Bradle's book, The Devil in Connecticut. uh, And that one was written with, along with um, Lorraine Warren's help. Yeah, so per the News Times, the Glutzels later sued the publisher because of how its publication affected their family. Carl Glutzel, David's brother, said that the family, or no, said that the story was a hoax conjured by the Warrens to exploit the family. Mm. So they talk about it more in that movie, and I was just not impressed with that movie. Mm. The like, nude conjuring. I thought, yeah, I thought um, the exorcism of Emily Rose was more entertaining. I honestly fell asleep, so I could agree with you there. Unfortunately, I really do like the Conjuring universe movies yeah, too, too, even though they are like dramatizations of yes, their yes. cases, but they're pretty scary and good for the most yeah. part. Just enjoyable. Um. <clears throat> Um, here's another, this one is outside of the Conjuring movie franchise, like universe, but Mm -hmm. it still has to do with the Warrens and it is also a movie. So, hold on. 
Oh, there it is. Okay. <laughs> so again, the story here starts when a family moves into a new place. This time, the Snedecker? Snedecker? <laughs> I think it's Snedecker. I'm not... I can't remember, honestly. Okay. So the Snedecker house, a former funeral home... Oh my god. Okay, one more time. So again, the story here starts when a family moves into a new place. This time, the Snedecker house, a former mm. funeral home. So mm. when settling, do you know which one it is? Is it the haunting in Connecticut it one? Is. That's like, oh, it okay. is Zachary. It is. Oh snap. Okay, so when settling into their new residence in 1986. The Snedecker family, Alan, Carmen, and their children discovered all sorts of disturbing funeral paraphernalia in the basement, including toe tags, coffin hoisters, and blood drains. According to People, the unsettling happenings started with sexual attacks, slaps, and gropes in Mm -hmm. sexual places, I guess. Uh, spirit appearances and personality changes in the oldest child who was afflicted with Hodgkin's disease and schizophrenia. I thought mm-hmm. he had something else, but okay. Mm-hmm. So this Nedecker house became the basis for the film The Haunting in Connecticut. As the story goes, the Warrens stopped by the home and said it was possessed. Like, that's literally all they did. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, per Live Science, Ray Garten, the horror author hired by the Warrens to write about the house, noted conflicting reports between the family members. Still, he said that he was asked to hype up the story in the book In a Dark Place, the story of a true haunting, which mm-hmm. he wo- wrote with the Warrens, which he wrote. <laughs> okay. This next one is the one I had not heard of, and I went a little more into detail because I hadn't heard of it. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. So, this is the story, or not the story, but this is the hauntings of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Whoa. Okay, and it's supposed to be like a super prestigious school. Mm-hmm. So, um, cadets over the years said that that they have shared that they have a shared feeling as if they were being observed by an unseen presence, just to find no one there. And while others have reported encountering apparitions in the middle of the night, this was frequently documented during the 1970s when a ghost visited the barracks. In 1972, West Point experienced an explosion of national inquiry and publicity because of a well-documented apparition that attracted famous demonologists, ghost hunters, and psychic mediums of the last century to investigate. But that is just one of West Point's ghostly tales. The stories um, that I'm about to tell you were sourced for more than 40 years of correspondences articles, and book excerpts um, collected by USMA historians. So, um, 
Okay, here we go. So Lieutenant Colonel Timothy R. O'Neill gave a thorough perspective in his book, Shades of Grey. And the following story was inspired by details from his research. So, okay, room 4714 and the pusher. In October 1972 at 2 a.m. in room 4714 of the North Barracks 47th Division, two male cadets were sound asleep when a ghost soldier manifested in front of the younger cadet and the closet against a wall. The soldier stared with menacing eyes made of light that stirred the cadet to consciousness. Upon waking, the cadet screamed and the soldier immediately vanished. The cadet's roommate did not see anything but said that there was an otherworldly coldness in the room. The ghost was described as a middle-aged soldier donning an antique uniform from the 1830s, a musket, shako hat, and handlebar mustache. (laughs) The ghost (laughs) earned his nickname, The Pusher, because his ice-cold presence forced other victims to lay immobile until the pressure of his hazy, glowing physique disappeared. That's dumb. According to the New York Times, the pusher appeared a second time in an area known as the Bureau. One cadet they interviewed shared that the ghost walked out amidst a group of cadets, which caused them to scream, clutch each other, and say the rosary. No, jeez. Reports of seeing him were sporadic over the following years, but the pusher has not revisited where he first appeared. Room 4714 is no longer occupied but cadet- by cadets. The room was converted into a study area and seemingly exercised due to no other paranormal accounts being documented sin- since 1972. The building has since been renamed Scott Barracks. Mm. So now we have Quarters 10 with Molly and Greer. So over 217 years have passed since West Point opened its doors and an army institution of higher as an army institution of higher learning. But the land hosts a complex history that comes with an abundance of stories. One can imagine there are plenty of other haunted areas on posts besides the barracks. Um, the superintendent's house is known as quarter 100 for paranormal believers, it serves as a supernatural hotel, given their variety of spirit personalities that come and go. Based on several reports, there are two permanent ghost residents to this day. Um, former Superintendent Lieutenant General William K. Knowlton invited married uh, clairvoyants Ed and Lorraine Warren to perform a psychic investigation and seance at the house in 1972. The wife revealed her psychic impressions of those living in another dimension as she toured the rooms of quarters 100. Uh, The superintendent noted detailed accounts of Warren's psychic impressions that she picked up during her investigation. They included descriptions of the spirits and energy present in each room. He wrote them down in a memorandum to the librarian, requesting them 
to search West Point archives and find evidence that supported her claims. Warren described a woman who would be the ghost, who could be the ghost named Molly, an Irish cook who served Sylvanius Thatcher. I guess that was somebody important. Uh, she is known to rumple bed linens and knock wine bottles to the floor in the kitchen. She is not old, uh, very de- domineering, athletically inclined, and really not quite a lady. I get a feeling of no man, if she had a husband, he was dominated well at home, Warren said. Oh my gosh. Jesus. Uh, others who worked at Quarters 100 have said that they, that oh my God, have said that although mischievous, Molly does not mean any harm and is more playful than hurtful in nature. Another ghost mm-hmm. struck Warren was with a strong psychic impression was an African-American man named, man named Greer. She shared that Greer is the one responsible for moving objects throughout the home. One example was written in Knowlton's memorandum when the former superintendent of the Coast Guard Academy and his wife stayed at the house as guests and they woke up early in the morning. They found a wallet that belonged to another occupant in the home um, and carefully placed it between them in bed. I don't, I guess, to not lose it. Uh, Warren described Greer as tall and slender in a gray uniform that he was an orderly to a superintendent and communicated that he carries a deep burden of guilt and sadness from committing murder. Mm. In the librarian's Mm -hmm. response to the superintendent's request for verifiable information, archivist, archivist, (laughs) (laughs) um, were able to find documented evidence of several, Oh my God. Several African-American men who came through West Point with Greer's name. One of the descriptions that potentially best fit that of the ghost um, Warren encountered was Lawrence Greer, a Buffalo soldier who turned out to be a criminal. Mm -hmm. General prisoner Lawrence Greer was definitely black, formerly a private in Troop C, 9th Calvary. He escaped from confinement at Fort Levensworth in June 1931 and was apprehended the following April near Albany, New York. He was brought to West Point and court-martialed for his escape and subsequent dissertation. Dissertion. Jesus, dissertation. <laughs> um, found guilty, he was sentenced to two and a half years of hard labor. However, the sentence was dispensed disapproved by command of Major General Connor because the prisoner was judged insane at the time of his trial. He had no record of what happened to Private Greer after these events. So the librarian made or seemed motivated, but he said most of Warren's descriptions were would require an extensive search of um an extensive search of reminiscence from past superintendents, which are not part of the archives holdings. Today, West Point archivists can provide memories 
from past graduates and professors when they lived at another haunted house. What? (laughs) Today, West Point archivists can provide memories from past graduates. Oh, oh, I see. Oh, they like provide them to the others. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. (laughs) Our literacy is improving. It's improving, but also it's really hard when I'm high. (laughs) Focus. I know, right? Focus, focus. I just keep thinking, okay, you said the word. I'm like, but I didn't say it in the correct. Sometimes when you're reading, it's hard to tell, like, how to say it. Yes, I didn't realize how much thinking there goes. (laughs) Reading and talking. (laughs) Reading aloud. Okay. Quarters 10-7-B. 10-7-B. I feel like it's... (laughs) 107-B or some shit. Okay. Quarters 107-B and the lady. It was reported in... Oh, shit. It was reported in email correspondence between several former cadets and the Association of Graduates that a ghostly occupant named the Lady resides at Quarters uh, 107B on Professor's Row, which is a home overlooking the Hudson River. A professor once lived there with his young wife, but their story does not end happily ever after. The couple was struck with tragedy when she became fatally ill in nineteen in the 1920s. To help ease her sickness and keep the house tidy, her mother came to live with them. The story goes the professor and the mother shared an attraction that grew into love, which devastated the wife. Uh, perhaps her untimely death arrived even faster due to a broken heart. They say hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. <laughs> mm, I mean, <laughs> she made her husband pledge not to remarry her mother, but once she took her last breath, he took vows shortly after with the mother anyways. Mm. So the ghost was left by a man she was in love with for her own mother and their affair began in the same home that she was bedridden in. Mm. So some mediums say her intense emotional distress became or mm-hmm. began while she was alive, but keeps her soul gripped to this world for from a lack of finding peace. And mm. this is what prompted chaotic paranormal activity over the years. It was reported that items were thrown and turned upside down, a clock that was frozen for years abruptly chimed to life out of nowhere. And a former tenant said that they heard horrendous sounds in the night, like someone riding a big wheel across the wooden floor overhead. Absolutely not. <laughs> the haunting was so frequent. The post engineer had to seal the ghost bedroom off at one point because she scared people out of it. But the room eventually reopened in the 1950s. Although these disturbing actions were not very ladylike, the ghost received her name from the eight-year-old daughter of a of a class of 1960 graduate. The family lived there between 1971 and 1975, and the little girl and her younger sister occupied the haunted room during that time. 
if you knew the room was haunted, why would you let the two little girls stay in there? Oh, goodness me. Jesus. <laughs> the girl woke her parents in the middle of the night on multiple occasions. They heard their child having a conversation. But after getting out of bed to check on her, they discovered that she was not speaking with anyone that they could see. When the parents oh asked her who she was talking to, she called her the lady. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So, um, aside from West Point's most famous spirits, there were reports of other paranormal activity throughout the installation. An extra head in a cadet's group photo peered in from a MacArthur barracks window. Frightened pets bark at nothing in officers' quarters. A cleaner on the night crew quit his job after being thrown by a malevolent spirit in Building 606. Like, no thank you. No. Mm -mm. Nope. Okay, so now... We are at the other story that I, or the other case that I didn't know existed. One of the most bizarre cases ever investigated by Ed and Lorraine Warren occurred in Essex, England. A seemingly ordinary carpenter named William Ramsey claimed to be possessed by a demon that compelled him to take the form of a werewolf. Oh, snap. So Ramsey had experienced his first transformation at the age of nine. As he described it, he was playing outside when he felt an icy cold breeze followed by an awful smell before he flew into a rage, uprooting a fence post with the fence still attached and gnawing at the wire mesh. So Ramsey would not experience another episode like this until adulthood. He went by Bill at this point. So Bill would fly into violent fits of rage during which he would display inhuman strength, baring his teeth and growling while curling his hands like claws. When the Warrens <laughs> caught wind of this in 1989, they convinced Bill Ramsey to come to their church in Connecticut and undergo an exorcism with their specialist, Bishop Robert McKenna. <laughs> Through the years. <laughs> and that's it. That's all it says. <laughs> Jeez, Louise. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> A fucking werewolf? Yes. Since nine years old? He apparently, he also would have this reoccurring dream of his wife running and him running after her. And finally, he said um, he stopped having the dream, but then all of a sudden, he like transformed in front of himself, like in the mirror, he transformed into a werewolf. And then I think he tried to kill her, like he ran after her in real life, like it was his dream come true. Well, yeah. Hopefully, he didn't get her. I don't think he did. <laughs> she she was standing in the corner trying not to laugh because yeah was probably growling I'd be like, and <laughs> please stop. <laughs> so through the years, the Warrens performed uh, all of their paranormal investigations free of charge. 
making their livelihood from selling books, movie rights, lectures, and tours of their museum. Yeah, because who the fuck is going to let you investigate and you charge them? Like, Um, what? To get your help? Yeah, and it's free publicity. Oh, ha-ha. There you go. So... Yeah, so they did. But Instead that's of they got their the families directly. Yes, through books, movie rights, lectures, and tours of the museum. Ed mm-hmm. died in his the home he shared with his beloved Lorraine. Reports are he passed from complications following a stroke on August 23rd, 2006. And Lorraine retired from active investigations shortly after that. However, she remained as a consultant to the NESPR, which is the Paranormal Research Society shit, until her death in 2019. She passed away in her sleep in the same home, also from natural causes. So, and according to the Warren's official website, there, I already said this earlier, but their son-in-law has taken over as director of NESPR, and he's the head curator of the Warrens Occult Museum in Monroe, Connecticut. Both mm. Warrens are buried at Stephanie Cemetery in Monroe, Connecticut. There is a stone bench at the grave where visitors can sit if they dare. Stephanie Cemetery itself is one of the top 10 most haunted cemeteries in Connecticut. The most haunted cemetery being... Union Cemetery down the street just a bit. Ironically, Union Cemetery was investigated by none other than the Warrens themselves. So that was their life and their death. But now we get to where everyone wants to know, were they frauds? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm, it's, I've just got a crazy ass. I mean, it's just, it gets crazy. Right. So here we go. So many skeptics have criticized Ed and Lorraine over the years, saying they're good at telling ghost stories, but lack any real evidence. However, Ed and Lorraine always maintained that their experiences with demons and ghosts absolutely took place as they described. So they claimed that they investigated 10,000 paranormal cases in their lifetimes. If they investigated one case per day, this would take them 27.3 years. That's without taking weekends off. As we can see from their books and in the Conjuring universe, some of these cases took days or even months to resolve. Mm. So, and Ed also had a day job as a bus driver and the couple had a child and they wrote books and they made media appearances and operated a fucking museum out of their house. Mm-hmm. Like, there was no time to do that. Not practical. Yeah. Even if they did overlap or do more than one at a time. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's just... So, the best place to start looking for this kind of information, like, to see if they are frauds, is in the book that helped popularize the couple, The Amityville Horror by Jay Anson. It propelled the two into stardom and showed that there was a whole lot of marketability marketability behind their stories. But a close look at the actual content of the book brings into question many of the events that were presented as facts. 
So the Snopes, Snopes, Snoops. Yeah, Snopes. <laughs> so the Snopes article on the haunting uh, says the fact. Oh, no, no. Okay, yes. Yeah. So it says, um, like, it counts it as the entire thing is false. So their argument is hinged upon a few of the haunting's key facts being outright untrue. The book reports extensive interior damage inside the house, but none of that was ever found. Conflicting opinions on whether the police ever showed up are cited as well. And perhaps most intriguing, a demonic hoof print found in the snow could have never existed because there was no snow at the time. Mm-hmm. So, where am I? No snow at yes. the time. Wow. Of course, it could be easy to argue against these claims if you were so inclined. Maybe the interior of the house got repaired. Maybe some people never noticed that the police came. And maybe just maybe some details were embellished to make a true story a bit more exciting. In other words, there are enough holes in that argument to defend the Warrens if that was your goal. But the mountain of evidence isn't exactly in favor of the Warrens. Um, and William Weber, who was Ronald Defoe Jr.'s attorney, who is the guy that killed his family, um, mm-hmm. has publicly stated that the story was made up between Jane between. Jay Anson, the Warrens, and George and Kathy Lutz. Ooh. Yeah. And the story. It was made up, but I didn't know, like, who all was involved in the. Yeah, that's who he says. It was everybody. Dang. So the case featured in the original Conjuring movie was a real life haunting claimed to be experienced by the Perrin family. Both Lorraine and one of the Perrin children have confirmed that the movie is accurate. However, the woman who currently owns the house where the parents lived, Norma Sutcliffe, says that the movie is completely fiction and ended up making an hour-long video about all of them. And I do have the link to that video, and uh, I will have it listed in the show description. I love YouTube. <laughs> um, the second Conjuring movie is about the real-life infield hauntings, so the real family involved in that haunting did get caught taking evidence of the haunting or faking evidence of the haunting as shown in the movie. Also, like in the movie, police officers involved really did claim to see objects move on their own in the home, though. However, that's the only thing that would that was like convincing was that the, the cops were scared. Yes. To yes. handle the. Yeah. Anyways, go on. So. However, as far as the Warrens are involved, people involved in the case say, unlike the movie, in real life, the Warrens showed up uninvited and left the next day. Like moths to a flame. Yes. And this one, I'm not sure really how accurate it is, but it says the haunted Annabelle doll that the couple's famous for is certainly an extremely creepy story. And that's probably why... The whole story first appeared as an episode of The Twilight Zone, which aired seven years before the Warrens ever met the Annabelle doll. The episode titled Living Doll was part of the show's fifth season, if anyone wants to go double check. Fun. Yeah. 
Um, the new okay, and this is great. The New England Skeptical Society, which I feel like Hunter would be a part of. Oh, great! I know, right? Yes, uh, they <laughs> investigated many of the Warrens' claims. One founder, Stephen Novella, who is also a neurologist and professor at Yale School of Medicine, said, "You meet them, and oh my God, the guy had no idea what he was doing." He didn't know the first thing about anything relevant to paranormal investigation or ghost phenomena. Uh, Stephen also described that the Warren's occult museum was full of off-the-shelf Halloween junk dolls and toys. <laughs> no way. Yeah, that's, I'm sure. He's going in. But well, this- maybe he, he didn't have all the, you know, the training to be a ghost hunter, but he led with his Catholicism. From what I can tell. Mm, well. But anyways, go on. The Warrens refused to allow members um, from the Skeptical Society oh. to shadow them on a paranormal oh. investigation or to yeah. examine the evidence. The Warrens widely claim to proving. Wait. Yeah. they. Oh, my God. You're beating the shit out of over here. Um. <laughs> So they wouldn't allow the skeptical society to shadow them <coughs> or to examine evidence that the Warrens had claimed to be <coughs> proving the existence of paranormal phenomena. So when pressed, Ed Warren said, you can't have scientific evidence for a spiritual phenomenon. Uh, I, okay. All right. I mean, I might be grasping here because I want to believe that they are somewhat, they might have, you know, gone too far with some of their stuff, but I want to believe that they were real in the beginning at least. Yeah. So the Warrens themselves claim they once encountered a werewolf demon. They had an entire book about this case in which they specifically said that they have exhaustive documentation backing up their claims, but they never share that documentation. Shoot. Like if you're if you're working on a case with a real life werewolf demon, would you not That's want huge? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um they also have claimed that they have video evidence of the white lady, who is a local legend about a ghostly lady haunting the Union Cemetery in Connecticut. If they have a ghost on video. Why did they never show this video to the public? Mm. And, but wait a minute, Stephen Novella from the New England Skeptical Society Mm -hmm. says that he was only allowed to view the video at the Warren's home. And even there, it seems suspicious. So he wrote a blog about it. And here is an excerpt. And he says, their piece de resistance in did you like that? I did <laughs> in Ed's video of the famous white lady of the Union Cemetery in Easton, Connecticut. Uh, we've only been able to view this tape in the Warren's home because Ed refused. Okay, we've only been able to view this tape in the Warren's home because Ed refused to give it to us for analysis, a common theme in our investigation. The tape shows an apparent white human figure moving behind some tombstones like videos of UFOs, Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster. However, the figure is that 
is at that perfect distance and resolution so that a provocative shape can be seen, but no details which would aid definitive identification. Ed Warren has not investigated the video with any scientific rigor and refuses to allow others to do so. Despite Ed's insistence that he was engaged in scientific research, he continues or he continued to jealously hoard his alleged evidence rather than allow it to be critically analyzed as mm-hmm. is necessary mm-hmm. in genuine scientific endeavors. Too much um, pride. Yes, but after the Warrens died, their son-in-law, Tony, did release the video, which is also going to be linked in the episode description. Yeah, so the Warren Occult Museum contains haunted and demonic objects from cases where it seems like it would have been extremely easy to get verifiable evidence of the paranormal if those cases were real. For instance, in their museum, the Warrens have a vampire coffin from a modern-day vampire they claim to have met. They couldn't get hard evidence from a vampire, but they could get his coffin. Mm. <laughs> like, why would they... They're I don't, just enough, they think. Like, I don't... I don't know. Like you were just, was it a, you just had an extra laying around, so you decided to give one to them? Like, what? Yeah, that is weird. How do you explain? They didn't yeah, even want like, to. They I don't didn't know. even try, so that they yeah. couldn't be caught in the lie. I mean, they're dead now, so they don't care. I know. Do you think people around them signed, like, NDAs or something? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I want well. to know the truth. <clears throat> um... The Warrens, as well as some people that were supposedly there for the real events, maintain that they are completely legit. Mm. The skeptics are biased towards not believing the Warrens, and the Warrens have a very real monetary desire to keep up their image as the only real ghost hunters out there, or they did. So where does that leave us? Well, it really is impossible to come to a conclusion. Yeah, the Warrens don't have video evidence of their hauntings, that seem legit and the evidence seems to point towards them at least faking a thing or two throughout their careers. Whether they, whether that means they faked everything is up to you though. Like all great ghost stories or conspiracy theories, these hauntings will never be truly proven real or fake. We'll always be able to debate them and their legacy is solidified by the dozens of films and television series that have been created based on their many eerie cases. But beyond the claims that the Warrens fabricated at least parts of each famous haunting they were involved in, there are the extremely disturbing claims about Ed. Mm, Scandal. Scandal. The scandal. The betrayal. So, apparently, when Ed was in his mid-30s, he allegedly met 15-year-old Penny. Oh, no. Having not yet gained enough fame as a self-trained demonologist to pay the bills in the early 1960s, Ed was working as a city bus driver in Monroe, Connecticut. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And Penny was a student at Central High School in the nearby town of Bridgeport who rode his bus. Oh, gosh. The two began an what is this, amorous relationship. Penny said in a legal declaration she gave in November 2014, according to that document, as well as newly obtained recordings of Penny's recollections, recollection of events, by 1963, she had moved into the Warrens' home. Goodness gracious. For the next 40 years, no. she said she had a sexual relationship with Ed and Lorraine fucking knew. Well, dang. At first, Penny stayed in a bedroom directly opposite the one occupied by the married couple. But eventually she moved into an apartment built for her above the home, like an attic. So one night he would sleep downstairs with Lorraine and then another night he would sleep upstairs. So yeah, he would sleep, he would take turns sleeping with them. Oh my gosh. Wow. Even in 1963, a teenage girl did not move in with a married man without attracting notice. Mm. That year, Penny was arrested after someone reported her relationship with Ed to Uh, the police. Why was she arrested? Because everybody, women of all ages were the devil. Good grief. Yeah. So according to November, to her November 2014 declaration, I'm assuming the cats have started migrating to their... Yes. You have no idea what is going on outside. She's chiming in. Showing her support. It's the midnight bark. Fifteen puppies. (laughs) Twilight bark, damn it. Fifteen stolen puppies. (laughs) Fifteen! You're killing me. (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah, earlier when you were saying the numbers of the places at the military base, and I was uh-huh. thinking, 2319, we got a 2319. <laughs> but I didn't want to interrupt you. That was a number that I did say that I thought of something Disney, too. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God, I need these dogs to start barking. I'm almost <laughs> done. <laughs> okay, so according to her November 2014, oh, yes, okay, she... Yes, 2014 declarations. She spent a night in the North End prison in Bridgeport while police tried to persuade her to sign a document admitting to the affair. Uh. After Penny refused to cooperate, she was ordered by the court to report to a delinquent youth office for the next month. According to Penny's account, Ed picked her up from school every week and drove her. To the mandated meetings. Ugh. What the heck? Like, I cannot. How embarrassing. They didn't know, like, she was 15, like, he's a pedophile, though. They really... Her brain was not developed yet. Yeah. So Penny has said that Ed told her many times that she was the love of his life. The Warrens, according to her, presented her variously as a niece or poor girl whom they had taken in out of charity. God. In Hmm. May 1978, in her 30s, Penny became pregnant with Ed's child. Oh, my. 
she has said. Catholic home. In the declaration, she said, Lorraine persuaded her to have an abortion because the birth of a child would become public and any scandal would ruin the Warrens' business. (gasps) These are no Catholics of... God. Yes, and it even says that. Though Lorraine has claimed to be a devout Catholic, Penny said her real God is money in a tearful recording. Penny recalled, they wanted me to tell everyone that someone had come into my apartment and raped me, and I wouldn't do that. I was so scared. I didn't know what to do, but I had an abortion. The night they picked me up from the hospital after having it, they went out and lectured and left me alone. That's awful. How traumatic. No, yeah, that's bad. Ugh, Penny. Penny also has claimed Ed was sometimes abusive to Lorraine. Mm. Early on, she said she witnessed him backhand his wife so hard that she lost consciousness. Golly. Sometimes Ed would actually have to slap her across the face to shut her up. Penny said in one recording, some nights I thought they were going to kill each other. Penny has said that she helped Ed maintain his reputation as a ghost hunter. He claimed to have captured the white lady. Yes, we just talked about her on tape in the summer of 1990 after camping out in the graveyard for a week. Penny claims that Ed wanted to make a video that would show what the white lady would look like if she were spotted. So she took a page from every grade schooler's Halloween playbook and donned a white sheet for the filming. (gasps) OMG. Lorraine's attorney, Barkin, says that Judy and Tony, the Warren's daughter and son-in-law, never saw any of the alleged conduct during the decades they spent with Ed, Lorraine, and Penny. The Warrens opened their home to Miss Penny when she was 18 and and had nowhere else to live following... A childhood of neglect, writes Barkin in an email. During much of their career, Ed and Lorraine were on the road working on cases and giving lectures, and Miss Penny lived and watched their house. They or lived at and watched their house. They also say Penny had a long-term boyfriend for much of that time, whom she eventually married, and the couple spent holidays with their family. The spirits believe Penny is now being manipulated, but Lorraine seemed to have been intent on preventing any sordid aspects of her story from being portrayed on screen. Her deal with New Line as her new with her deal with New Line to serve as a consultant uh, consultant on her model for the conjuring includes unusual restrictions. The films couldn't show her or her husband engaging in crimes, including sex with minors child pornography, prostitution, or sexual assault. Neither the husband nor wife could be depicted as participating in an extramarital sexual relationship. Talent attorney Jill Smith said she has never seen specific language barring such depictions, though individuals selling rights to their stories sometimes restrict portrayals. I've done deals which prevented depictions of certain specific types of odious behavior, which are not relevant to the underlying story and in which typically the person is not known to have participated. She says 
sure, but like they're old people. Like, why would you? Yeah. I don't know. Ugh. I don't know. <clears throat> so they faked it, the whole thing. So soon after the original Conjuring movie opened, producer Tony DeRosa Grund um, sent an email informing top Warners and New Line executives that the film was a far cry from the advertised true story of the Warrens. DeRosa Grund now locked in a legal battle with um, Warners over profits from the movie after he claimed it was unfairly shut out of the sequels and spinoffs, said that his September 2013 email. Oh, my God. He said in his September 2013 email that a woman close to the Warrens had seen the movie and was mortified as to the inaccurate portrait of the relationship between Ed and Lorraine Warren. Among those copied on the email were Warner's chairman, Kevin. Why would they do this? Okay. So Warner's chairman, marketing chief, and as well as then president of new line and a bunch of other fucking high up people that I don't feel like reading their names. <laughs> it's okay yeah so not only were the Warren's marriage a far cry from the ones portrayed on screen DeRosa Grund wrote in his email but their daughter also named Judy and portrayed in the original film by Sterling Jarens uh, had lived not with her parents but with Lorraine's mother Penny said that she was the only young girl living in the Warren's house. What? So Ed was a pedophile, a sexual predator, and a physically abusive husband, wrote DeRosa Grund. Uh, Lorraine enabled Ed to do this. She knowingly allowed this illegal relationship to continue for 40 years. They lied to the public. The email was sent after the first film, but 2016's The Conjuring 2 only amplified the loving relationship between the Warrens. At one point, Ed adoringly sings, can't help falling in love with you, or can't help falling in love to War to Lorraine, and the film ends with a callback to that moment as Lorraine puts the record on and the two slow dance in their living room. The Warrens' straightforward earnestness fuels the film, more so than their Catholicism. Catholicism? Wow. Mm -hmm. uh, wrote Sherry Linden in the Hollywood Reporter review of The Conjuring 2. Amid the chills and thrills, the childhood anxieties and the vulnerability, director James Wan uh, has made a celebration of the de demonologist duo's marriage. He really did. Mm -hmm. The uh, Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson are so sweet as a couple on screen. It's they so really are. They sell it, man. I did. I did think that that was such a sweet scene when he's playing guitar, singing, and that's just so cute. But now we know. Ugh. So there's still more. Ugh. In his September <clears throat> 2013 email, DeRosa Grund wrote that he had assured Penny that he could temper the romantic relationship shown between Ed and Lorraine in the sequels. He warned the executives that Penny might tell her story to the media. Mm. Once this comes out, do you think Patrick Wilson or Vera, what is her last name? Farmiga? Farmiga. Mm -hmm. 
would knowingly play Ed and Lorraine ever again? He asked. Mm-hmm. The answer is no one would. No amount of spin from any crisis PR firm can ever fix <sighs> this once the truth comes out. And neither actor has commented. Mm-hmm. But Penny has never told her story to the media. But it nearly surfaced as part of the sprawling legal fight over the films. Oh, wow. Yeah. She's Author, not, like, trying to sell to the tabloids. Yes. Like, I have juicy info. Yes. Oh, oh, go on. Author Gerald Bertel claims in a pending lawsuit that the Conjuring franchise rips off his 1980s book, The Demonologist. Bertel is suing Warners and New Line for a staggering $900 million. The studio has argued that its films are protected from copyright claims because no one has a monopoly to tell stories or make movies about true life figures and events. But Brittle counters that the studio is aware that the portrayal of the Warrens in his book turned out to be far from truthful. Brittle claims that he believed the stories the Warrens told him, but later found out that they were concocted. Legal experts say that Warners and New Line did not do nec- did not necessarily do anything wrong by allowing so heavily a fictionalized portrayal of the Warrens' relationship. At the end of each film, uh, Warners included a standard disclaimer reading dialogue and certain events and characters contained in the film were created for the purpose of dr- dramatization, which I guess no one has seen. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I do think the public understands that based on means that some liberties with storytelling storytelling have been taken, says attorney Lincoln Banlow, who specializes in legal clearance for productions. It's a less enjoyable film if the ghost hunters are a bunch of assholes no one likes. (laughs) I mean. You have to have your protagonist be likable. That's, I mean, but not everything's black and white. I can't, I don't know. Yeah, well, he said there's a giant sense of take some of this with a big grain of salt to this whole project. Still, if he were representing the studio, he'd advise caution with respect to misleading fans, even though he doubts a false foundation would spark any viable legal claim. Okay, Uh, attorney Lisa Califf, an advisor to independent producers, agrees that the problem is more a matter of public relations than law. Filmmakers could easily argue that the relationship is not material to the story and justify sticking with the happy Hollywood version. So what if people believe they have a good relationship? If I were in this mix and the filmmakers knew all about this other woman... I don't think I'd tell them that it was necessary to make any changes or to adjust the story. As for Penny, now in her 70s, it seems she has never received dissent from the Conjuring movies. Though she clearly has no love for Lorraine, she still seems to have fond feelings for Ed. Though their relationship ended in 2003 and she subsequently married, she remained friendly with Ed until his death in 2016. Mm. She still seems to be pondering her past and wondering about Lorraine's role as well as her own. As I'm older now, I can't even fathom why Lorraine let me stay there, she said in an October recording. Lots of times I think about, why did I do this? Why did I screw up my life like this? Mm-hmm. Sometimes I get angry thinking about it, how so much was taken away from me. 
Like mm-hmm. for pedophile, like really? 40 years. Yeah. He yes. groomed her. When they said an amorous relationship from the beginning, I was like, no, she's 15. She doesn't know. I mean, a, a little crush is not the same thing as when you're an adult and you can tell like rationally, yeah. why is this guy interested in me? Absolutely. And then, I don't know. It's weird, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, and how, thank you. And how his wife like allowed it. I, she just didn't want, I don't know, maybe she just wanted Penny to take care of his affection needs or whatever. And, maybe. And want to deal with them. And she just wanted to be his roommate slash business partner situation. Because I don't know. Unless it was like an open situation. I don't, who knows? I don't know. Maybe but it was all. somebody too. And he's still yet to come out the woodwork because. I don't know. If she had somebody on the side too, and she oh. just hasn't come to say, like, yeah, I don't think he her. would have allowed it. I don't think Ed would have allowed it. And right. from the sounds of it, she wouldn't have let herself do that either, because apparently you need a man mm-hmm. or you're some uptight bitter, bitter lady that turns into a ghost. Right. That's wild. Mm-hmm. Oh, and when they, you were discussing the portrayal in the film, how people don't want to see it. I thought of Elvis and Priscilla. Oh, yep. So Sofia Coppola is making a Priscilla movie and it's going to portray like how she was so young and she just got like whisked away. But because it's Sofia Coppola, I have faith that she's going to show the predatory side of Elvis in like such a like good way for people to grasp it. Like, I don't know. Yeah. From her point of view as I a hope young so. girl. So yeah, that's why I still haven't seen. Yeah, I still haven't even seen the Elvis movie with Austin. I haven't either. I'm just not into like. Why am I going to celebrate this guy Mm -hmm. who stole music that was already being made and made it good, quote unquote, and then groomed this young girl? And everybody was like, "Cool, this is fine." Yeah. Um, But she's still alive, so I don't want to. I hate talking about her like that too, because I mean, she's going to say those were my choices and this and that. Yeah. Because the outcome ended up working out in this situation, whereas in Penny's situation, she was forced to have an abortion and, um, you know, silenced, essentially. Yeah. Very unfortunate. Mm-hmm. But I thought I'd give you a little creepy and a little true crimey at the same time. That was perfect. That was a great compilation for this month, for sure. Perfect. And the scandal, it was just everything. Um a lot of people don't know about Ed and Lorraine. They just know about the Conjuring universe and yep. that they're real people. So, I mean, yep. based off what they show and that whole like what werewolf part, they show it in the Annabelle Comes Home or whatever movie. Do they? Yes. And I was like, I where refuse- the heck is the oh, I haven't seen werewolf Annabelle coming from? Home. But you know what? They I think they started teasing those things in the museum, the artifacts, because they're going to oh. eventually make the werewolf movie if they ever get their hands on more info oh, about the God. case. If not, they're going to have to completely spin one, spin out of thin air, like, oh, this well, is a I mean, werewolf but case. that's, you could, like, you could potentially make up a ghost because, story. Right, because Ed and Lorraine never gave the truth, you know, quote unquote. Yeah, what they happened. made up shit all the time. Just make up better stuff. Exactly. And just well, use them as characters. Dang. So they are not respected <clears throat> in the ghost hunting community, even from probably the ghost hunters in this case. Yeah. Because it just doesn't look, it's like, okay, we're trying to actually prove something. We want to know what's real and what's not. Like, yeah. don't make it harder than it already is for people yeah, to believe. Yeah, you're just making it harder, yeah. 
Oh, well, that was, a, that was good. Very nice. I'm glad. What a blast. Well, guys, that concludes for today. And we will catch you next week with something different and something scary. And uh, yeah, don't forget to follow us over on Instagram, G-I-M-M-E, The Creeps. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Add us. Uh, get added to our group on Facebook, you know, the little, what is it? Yes. Page. Yes. Um, so yeah, that fun times. Thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you next week. So did we give you the creeps?